We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. As Australia's population continues to rise, the demand for housing continues to intensify. To meet this demand, apartment buildings are being built at a rapid pace. Some high streets around the country are growing six storeys taller above the existing two-storey row houses. In other streets, you might notice a single house being torn down to clear space for two or three townhouses on the same block. All of these types of developments increase housing density. While this meets the need for more houses, it's also increasing the number of people who want to use services like public transport, libraries and schools. While there's so much focus on getting the houses built, there's a parallel need to make sure all the extra people in a community don't exhaust the services and amenities in an area. As our cities and towns continue to grow, we need to make sure that while we make buildings that accommodate everyone, we don't reduce the amenity that makes an area so good in the first place. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around Australia if high-density developments are being planned with communities in mind. There has recently been a lot of interest in the state of apartment design in Australia. Some buildings have been evacuated due to cracking, and some building facades have caught fire. With these examples of apartments taking up so much of the mainstream media's time, it seems that some of the confidence in Australia's building professionals could be on the decline. But these few bad outcomes don't determine what the future of high-density design in Australia is going to be like for every project. There are still a lot of architects, consultants and builders who are working really hard to build the best buildings that the country has to offer to the community. Damien Madigan shares how it's not too late for architects to design more buildings that can help our neighbourhoods, but they still need to illustrate how the buildings can possibly benefit anyone else beyond the title boundary. Without wanting to sound patronising or like your uncle, when you have kids, you have to be optimistic for the future because the opposite is just unbearable to think about. So that kind of drives me in terms of thinking there has to be a solution out there and let's just keep plugging away at it. So I think one of the things that we can do as architects is to not just show what's possible when we're rethinking things, but I think we need to also be able to describe and demonstrate what the current conditions are. Mm-hmm. So in my work, if I'm, if I'm trying to plug away at showing that sort of low-scale, medium-density housing is, is possible in our suburbs, yeah. the only way I can do that, or the starting point for doing that, is to show what the suburbs currently support, which is a whole lot of infill stuff for cars and sheds and home business activity and big living spaces and things like that, things that have sort of infiltrated the suburbs in a granular fashion over time Mm -hmm. and then be able to describe well if we allow that sort of stuff we can allow the same sort of footprint but configured differently to create more houses and more socially connected Mm -hmm. houses but to make that argument you've got to be able to diagram or or describe the Mm -hmm. existing conditions and so i think it's not too late to rethink 
social sustainability. We just need to be able to communicate it and to keep bringing people on board. I think people intellectually understand we need more dense cities. Mm-hmm. Most people, unless they're kind of anti-growth. And I think people intellectually understand that we can't deliver it all through multi-storey apartments. Mm-hmm. They get that. They just don't want it in their neighbourhoods. And yeah. I, I get that as well, because frankly, up to this point, a lot of what they've seen has been pretty poor quality. Yes. And um, what, how else do we expect people to react to poor yeah. quality? They're going to say, no, no thanks. Yeah. But it's, it's, it, it can't be too late. If, no. <laughs> if no. it is, I need, to, <laughs> I need to retire now and just no, you know, no, no. ride out my days somewhere yeah. else. That was Damien Madigan from Damien Madigan Architects based in Adelaide. One of the main suburban efforts to increase density is infill housing. This is where a single block is subdivided into smaller lots. It sounds simple enough, but this development needs to be managed. If every suburban block was subdivided, then all the infrastructure would need to be increased to meet the public demands. Jane Weatherall tells us how infill housing is going to impact Perth and how hard it can be to maintain a community when major development is happening. In Perth, the targets that we have are that 47% of our new housing should be infill. That's way lower than anywhere else in Australia, like Adelaide at 70% and so forth. So I think our current targets need amplifying as it is and we need some more imagination on how we're doing that because in meeting those targets, I'd say the predominance of infill housing that we're seeing in Perth is battle axe lots and so forth in the inner city ring rather than high density apartments. So yes, we need to um, rethink and yes we are and we will get there. I think there is a misconception that communities, sustainable communities, can be easily created and quickly created. We did a project with SHAC, which is Sustainable Housing for Artists and Creatives, and that was in White Gum Valley. And the residents who are artists had fantastic background to it in that a lot of artists and creatives were being pushed out of Fremantle because of affordability. And this project allowed them to find a space to keep living, but it also built into the program a communal workshop. And and so it worked on a community level. It's quite beautiful. But the amount of work that these people have put in and the amount of time it took to manifest, you know, years and years and years, and, you know, couldn't have been done without a suitable developer for affordable housing, Landcorp, City of Fremantle, a financial structure. And so I guess the myth is that we can just easily bang these things out. (laughs) We need to work on it. That was Jane Weatherall from With Architects, based in Perth. Increasing an area's density is a good thing because it can reduce our impact on a larger area of land. But with so much large-scale building taking place at the moment, there needs to be a way for people to connect somewhere that isn't within a building. Jifa Greenaway shares how architects can respond to the rise in housing need in our major cities without negating the knock-on effects of mass urban development. Density is very much a hot-button issue at the moment. Our cities are climbing ever further skyward. 
the densification of our cities is increasing. The suburbs, again, are starting to densify. But there is an unequal balance in how that's starting to occur. We're having our major metropolises go up and we're seeing you know, major towers and residential towers particularly. The outer ring is densifying, but the inner ring isn't. That's sort of held and locked down and you can't develop. And so you have these sort of middle suburbs and affluent suburbs who are avoiding their role in terms of how we start to think about the consolidation and not sprawling our cities out ever further. And that is certainly a role of advocacy to improve the policy parameters around that. I think one of the major issues we're confronting is providing the green lungs to our cities. So our, our parklands, our green spines, our public open space are really critical. So if we are having density, we also need relief. And density has its own issues. But I think there is an understanding and it's, it's quite clear the developer imperative is to squeeze as much yield out of every proposition they undertake. So they are often the ones driving the agenda. And what role architects have in that is, is kind of complex because we're often the client of those who have the economic means to realise development. But I think this where is where policy comes in where we start to mandate minimum standards in terms of density and ratios and minimum size for apartments and the like. So this is where we can start to provide some pushback to the imperative of developers to just squeeze as much out. And we're seeing a lot of dog boxes being created and you know it's about how fast, how cheap and how many. And as designers we can certainly start to challenge that and push people outside their comfort zone to say well have you thought about doing it like this? Have you thought about doing it like that? And you know is there more value in actually creating bigger better proportion apartments for instance to respond to needs of families. So it presupposes that everyone is a student at a university and you have these tiny little one bedders or, or tiny two bedders. You know, are we actually designing spaces suitable for a family? You see in Europe the size and proportion of uh, high density living is actually more accommodating for the family unit. So as the density changes, we need to respond to those dynamics. But certainly we have a challenge. We are, there is a tension embedded in how we do it in a sustainable way. How do we respond to climate change? How do we respond to our critical needs of, of housing? And how we do it in a way which doesn't mean that you know, our arable land, our farmland, our waterways are all being degraded through this, this big push to create more dwellings as population increases. So it is certainly an embedded tension. The role of architects is, I think, limited in many respects. It really comes back to that sort of policy level, I think. That was Chief of Greenaway from Greenaway Architects, based in Melbourne. There are so many things that need to be built that a neighbourhood needs. It's these buildings and places where people gather together. Community centres, sports facilities and parks are just a few of the amenities that need to be considered. Without these places, suburbs can run the risk of having no public activity in the places where they're needed at all. Rod Simpson tells us how increased access to public infrastructure is a major contributor to helping the most people in a community and how the regulatory provision of car parking can impede good results in community development. 
we know what contributes to social sustainability. We know that it's about diversity. We know that in the higher density parts of the city, which is what this is talking about after all, if you look at the city of Sydney, I had a little bit of involvement with their social sustainability strategy and during that work, we collectively came up with a, an idea that there's no great advantage to being rich if you live in the city of Sydney. Meaning that you could have a perfectly fulfilled, enriched cultural life with access to services and so on, no matter how rich or poor you were in the city of Sydney. So yes, you might be extraordinarily wealthy, but you essentially would have equal access to the public library or the public spaces. So the public domain and the quality of the public domain and what's actually provided to the public is the answer to that question. And of course, then the individual building can contribute to the quality of that public domain. In terms of the program for the architect, again, you know, the, the, the requirement for affordable housing or for a diversity of unit types, uh, all the development control plans and so forth that start to talk about the way the building has to interface with the street is pretty well understood territory. I think the challenge for architecture is again where those planning requirements don't allow the architect to do things differently. And again, I'll come back to one of my pet bugbears with high density neighborhoods, which is in fact underground car parking. The way that we've allowed an incremental requirement, incremental over time, to require people to accommodate cars underneath buildings at extraordinary expense, which admittedly can then be recouped by the developer because you can sell it at a higher price. So it's not a loss leader for the developer necessarily. But it means that there's a whole, that's actually limiting the diversity of people that can afford to move into that building. Not only that, that underground car parking means that people aren't on the street. So if we're talking about social sustainability, social sustainability I think largely is about the unplanned interaction on a day-to-day -day basis of quite possibly strangers being civil to one another in the public domain. When we have a situation where it's been documented that 50% of the social interactions between people living in apartments occurs in the underground car park, I think we've got something wrong. Now that's not an architectural problem, but I think in terms of advocacy, in terms of continually arguing the case, being aware of what makes the chemistry of a place work, what makes a great place is the responsibility of the architect as people who are interested in making great cities. That's part of our job as well. So um, I, I certainly don't think it's too late. I think it's right, exactly the right time where we start to again question a lot of our assumptions about the way we've done things. And that then extends to the patterns of living that, that really foster human interaction. Whether it's that there's a light field foyer that has plants that can be tended by people you know, on higher levels in a building, or the number of apartments per level in a building that actually means that there can be some hope of interaction, or whether it's the requirement for a rooftop terrace that's accessible, or whatever it is, all of those components within a building I think are well and truly within 
the scope of an architect to put forward to a client and to put forward to the client both on the basis of social responsibility but also on the basis that it's likely to get a better hearing from the local government because it's actually demonstrating a broader interest rather than it simply being a um, commercial development. That was Rod Simpson from the Greater Sydney Commission. The public domain is where people in a community can come together and share services. When a community is made up of a diverse group of people with a range of lifestyles, this shared amenity can foster connections between the people who live in the same area. Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood tell us about some of the facilities that can be used in high-density areas and the results that can come from using them. So if we talk about what kinds of um, things that can architects and urban designers do to create more social sustainability in high-density neighbourhoods, I guess some of the things that come to mind are the creation of activated social, recreational or cultural spaces for cultural activities. So it's when there's none of those things or the provision of those things but which are not activated by other commercial retail or other activities that then you don't get social sustainability. So I think it's also partly, this is the architectural bent, I think if you provide appropriate scale, character, texture, comfort, light and delight in the spaces that are made, then people are more likely to occupy them and use them. So if you think of the High Line in New York would be a good example of a socially sustainable space that is obviously a space that, you know, that used to be um, a rail line, which is now this walking place. But it also has great comfort and delight in it through bringing nature into the middle of New York City. So those are some of the ways that I think that you can create social sustainability in high density neighbourhoods. Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be about um, balance and about what people need. So yes, you can live in a more high density suburb or more high density manner, but you've still got to have those spaces. People need connections to outdoors. People need places to socialise safely and, and comfortably. So. When, when we're considering solutions for this, we've got to be finding balance between the built environment, buildings and built environment, open spaces, landscape, connectivity, um, transportation, all of that. That was Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood from POD, based in Cairns. When architects design apartment buildings, they're faced with a difficult task. Architects need to create hundreds of homes that people with a wide variety of needs can live in. Rob McGoran tells us about the disadvantages of developments that build lots of apartments without meeting a community's needs and some solutions for those building types. There's a lot of questions at the moment around social sustainability in high density neighbourhoods. We're seeing two factions, if you like, arising. If there are those who are very and justifiably concerned about the apparent handing over of public housing sites for relatively small amount of uplift in affordable housing on those sites. You know, typically 10, 20% has been offered and many have said, well, that's nowhere near enough when we've got such big public housing waiting lists. We need much more, you know, these need to be a focus for reinvestment in affordable housing. And then there are the private sector who say we can't have people 
who fit a criteria of affordable housing within our development because they're going to um, eat our children and graffiti our cars and, and make the area unsafe. The evidence would suggest that neither is promoting a sustainable future. The evidence would suggest, for example, that if our purpose is to ensure that we are providing those whose current circumstances mean they need our support in discounted housing, that can be best provided through blended communities where there are advocates for high quality services, there are jobs and great public transport, etc. And rather than enclaves of disadvantage that have characterised housing estates and have largely made those introverted islands in uh, cities. So I'm an advocate for, yes, intensification of sites, but much more blending of, in, um, of models of around, you know, we, when I was in uh, the not-for-profit sector on a board, we had a 30% people off public housing waiting lists, 40% with some income from a range of sources, and 30% on lower income, moder you know, lower to moderate income key workers, as a way of integrating those neighbourhoods with broader neighbourhoods in areas that might have been more prosperous, but effectively, seamlessly connected and they've worked the evidence was that worked incredibly well as a model so I would advocate very much for that I think it absolutely can be done and the evidence the Americans even are doing it now Canadians are doing the Europeans have been doing it forever and the Scandinavians do it beautifully you know so there's plenty of models we can look for that would resonate with what Melbourne, for example, what Sydney and our other cities have always been anyway, which is very much a mix of people of all types uh, that has made us the rich and generous sort of country we are, but also one that's learnt from our people coming up as well as looking after each other. So there's a number of projects that we're working on and that we're hoping to work on. We did some early work probably a decade ago on the Fitzroy Gasworks site and that's now coming to market. And the opportunity there for government with a new school on the site in a rapidly gentrifying area is to think about, well, how could we make a much richer blend of community in that location, particularly with the potential prospect that at a federal level there'll be more dollars available for key worker housing etc for that moderate and lower level income. So I'm optimistic there but in private sector work we've got uh, a number of clients who are voluntarily including affordable housing commitments um, within their urban renewal of uh, precincts and that's been encouraging for us to be able to win those arguments with clients that this is a good long term part of the market for them to be part of the solution for rather than pushing back on. That was Rob McGoran from MGS Architects based in Melbourne. 
Designing for large numbers of people has its risks. A few decades ago, social norms made it more straightforward to predict family growth. But the modern family size and makeup doesn't follow the outdated cultural ideology of the nuclear family. Amelia Borg, Timothy Moore and Jane Court tell us what they're learning from their research and how this has impacted the way they think about the people and the social structures that will exist in their projects. One of the things that we try and do in a lot of our projects is to try and rethink different user groups and debunking, I guess, the nuclear family. And as part of the research we did um, in the new agency project, we looked at how people are living alone for longer, they're living by themselves, um, people are living in much more diverse groups and making their own families. One of the precedent case studies that we looked at was um, looking at the Baba Yaga project in Paris, where a group of women, uh, single women, all came together and lobbied their council for funding in order to make a housing complex where they could all live together and share the cost of aged care. And I think we're starting really to become interested in these kinds of examples where bringing different kinds of communities together and um, looking at how different trends in, I guess, living conditions can inform other ways of social sustainability through housing typologies. I mean, just, I guess, in a broader sense, if you try and sort of unpack the term social sustainability, for us that probably means that at the essence of the project there's some kind of intent to keep social cohesion and um, improve the relationship between people through a project. And I think that that's something that we strive to do in every project that we do, no matter what the scale or um, context, whether it be through housing or through other projects that we do. A project that Sibling worked on about a year ago, we were shortlisted for the Pride Centre, the Victorian Pride Centre with BKK Architects. And through that project, the brief was to make a, a community building for a diverse group of people who identify as GLBTIQ+. And through that project, I, I realised the there's probably um, the impossibility of inclusion. You can't make everyone happy, but you can allow for as much difference as possible. And maybe that's controversial amongst my colleagues here. But I feel that uh, there's almost an impossibility. And when you look at like the 20th century architecture, like modernism and the welfare state, it was like trying to include everyone in this kind of universal idea of what constitutes a home for the nuclear family. And that doesn't hold true anymore. And I think uh, how to address that through architecture, through our project proposal with BKK Architects, was to allow for as much difference as possible. Mm -hmm. And in the brief, you know, there were several entrances. Um, some were discrete entrances, some were more open threshold experiences as you move through, but also recognising different types of inhabitation of a building, like having larger rooms or smaller rooms for social exchange, whether they're meeting rooms or office rooms. So just to providing as much diversity of spaces, um, different types of materialization of spaces and allowing the user also to adapt the interior to find their place as well. Yeah, so picking up on a few things we've already discussed, uh, it, it does feel as though, um, and one of siblings' primary concerns is to just make sure that every space that we need to design and every community that we're designing for, we're really interrogating the evolving sort of typology or need for that of that space. And nothing is in stasis, everything is always in flux. And as architects, we just have to be really... Um, 
aware and on the ball and making sure that we're really engaged with all facets of, of society and culture. That was Amelia Borg, Timothy Moore and Jane Court from Sibling Architects based in Melbourne. With all of the considerations that need to go into a development, it might seem like designing an apartment building that connects to community is an impossible task. But like a lot of things, good things take time. When the time is allowed for experienced professionals to plan for these issues, it is possible to achieve these ambitious goals. Andrew Maynard talks us through how apartments, especially using the Nightingale model, can be positive for a neighbourhood when the right initiatives are used. You know, architects know that we can be living far more densely than we are, and that's not a compromise. It's actually a far better way of living. You know, as we spread out more and more, more suburbs, you know, spreading out, we're actually dislocating ourselves from each other. We're investing in roads, not parks. And density is a good thing. It's about who are the authors of that. And so as we've seen when there was legislative change that really encouraged density, the people that grabbed the steering wheel were traditional developers who are driven by profit. You know, they're business people, they're not housing providers. And we see what their algorithms and their spreadsheets have produced. You know, down at South Melbourne, you've got you know, six levels of car parking and then huge towers beyond that where it's just rack them and stack them, all for the argument of affordability. We can get more on this block and you know, sell it for cheaper. And all of that pragmatic spreadsheeting has produced something that doesn't equate for the neighbourhood or the social need or think about the way that we can turn streets into public spaces. And shared spaces. All of that is actually really nuanced and it requires a lot of thought and a lot of training and none of that can be pumped into a spreadsheet and given a value. We know as architects that you can create incredible community places that will immediately have uplift in terms of the property, the property prices. That's just what happens and that is what we're doing um, in Brunswick as part of Nightingale is we're buying up these sites that are just dodgy old sheds where no doubt terrible crimes have happened in the past with nobody watching. And we're, through good, diligent, cost-effective design, we're turning them into people-centric spaces with really simple ideas, you know, such as passive surveillance. Have people that just are hanging out and can see into these shared spaces and straight away these spaces become safer and better quality. And then immediately we're seeing that there's all this uplift in terms of land prices in the area because people have seen that the spaces aren't condemned. It just requires good architectural design thinking to um, turn them into humanist spaces. This stuff is actually 101 for, for, for any designer and architect. We just need to, to trust them. And, so, and that's what we, we've done with Nightingale is try to get the development model and turn it into a triple bottom line model. So instead of just engineering it for profit, it's not a charity. There's still profit embedded in that. You know, any, that uh, the cost of capital, but we're also concentrating on making really livable spaces and really highly sustainable spaces and as cost effective as possible. But all of those things are not just on the sticker on the, you know, the shiny brand new product, but the idea is that they're all embedded. So when we talk about social sustainability, that's ongoing social sustainability. So we get the building right, but it actually flourishes over time. Um, the same thing in terms of environmental sustainability, that it's not just covered in solar panels, but embedded in the very building fabric is a highly insulated you know, building. It's not about the technology we had on, it's getting the design right, make sure we maximise passive solar gain. 
Uh, and then also the financial sustainability, so making sure that it's not cheap. You know, it's not just here's a cheap building that leaks like a sieve and is not insulated at all, and therefore you're going to have crazy ongoing running costs and maintenance costs. Uh, make sure it's cost effective, but it has embedded in it really low ongoing running costs. And we're seeing that from uh, the commons that Breathe did, Nightingale One, and we'll see that as each Nightingale improves that uh, through embedded energy networks um, and through commitment of creating really thermally efficient envelopes, we're seeing tiny you know, running costs. At Nightingale 3, we don't even have heating and cooling. <laughs> we've got just an energy recovery unit in every apartment. And we've done the numbers on that um, to show that we've got incredible, it's almost a passive house, you know, German style passive house, that we've got um, such a stable internal environment that um, We've talked to our purchasers, so we've armed these people with all the information they need to make decisions about their living, and they've actually said, don't put heating in. Like, let's not pay all that money for a hydronic system. And if any of us have an issue during winter, we'll just go out and buy an efficient electric panel, knowing that through our embodied energy system, we're buying green power, cheaper than we buy coal power, uh, but we're also running a heap of solar as well. And that's a big part of, that's the other big part of Nightingale, is actually arming people with decision-making over their housing, which has been non-existent for so many decades, where it's been real estate agents telling developers what will sell to an overseas investor. You know, high-density living is what Australia needs to do, and we, it can be amazing. It is going to be amazing. What we're doing is already amazing. Hopefully, it's changing the way that we house people. That was Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects, based in Melbourne. Despite what's been in the news recently, there are a lot of great apartment developments out there, but you have to know where to look. Professor Philip Tallis tells us about a number of projects that have failed to positively contribute to Australia's social structure, but also lists the good developments and the initiatives that contributed to their success. So the question is very much the topical one about social sustainability in high density neighbourhoods in Australian city and I think we've got lots of negative examples and so when I look around uh, metropolitan Sydney to me there are abject failures. If I look at Mascot Town Centre, if I look at Wallow Creek, if I look at Wentworth Point, if I look at Rhodes, if I look along Canterbury Road, if I look at Carlingford, I see failure. When I go to Melbourne, I cannot believe that the intelligence of the HODL grid and the laneway strategies has produced a South Bank or a Docklands. When I go to Brisbane, I see the scourge of the casino landscape, which is turning over the core of government land, administrative land, into an obscene casino construction. Melbourne's got one of those. Sydney, unfortunately, is going to get two of those. I see urban blight on a mega scale, which has never existed in Australian cities previously. But that's not to say that high density living is not popular. When you go to these places, and I was taking a, a leading Melbourne architect around the better parts of Green Square yesterday, I think Green Square and the work that the city has done in Green Square is particularly instructive. Again, it's how you make the city. And so there was a very interesting initiative by Brian Howe as Deputy Prime Minister in the early 90s called Building Better Cities. And so the Sydney example is Piemont, Ultimo, um, there's an example in Perth and Adelaide. But Piemont Ultimo is very interesting because you had federal, state and local government working together over a decade. And the federal government gave seed money for the light rail, uh, gave seed money for the parklands around the foreshore, and it gave seed money for affordable housing, to create affordable housing. 
a green square, the city's had no assistance from other tiers of government and has had to um, build the social infrastructure from scratch. And the city of Sydney, and I'm obviously speaking as a councillor as well, but only a recent councillor, this has been the, the city of Sydney's initiative over almost two decades. So they have invested $1.2 billion of public funds in new social infrastructure. What is that social infrastructure? It is uh, new streets, new parks, dozens of new parks, many with playground. Currently under construction is a new pool. Um, a new library's just been opened with the square adjacent to the station. There are new cultural facilities, kindergartens, there are sports halls, there are all sorts of local community infrastructure projects being built and delivered. And that's essential in a high density area such as Green Square or, or, or any of the other areas that I mentioned, almost all of which lack the same social investment. In fact, even cumulatively, they don't have the investment that's in Green Square. When you just get high density housing or development, you get a monoculture. What you need to do is to provide the social infrastructure. The word that's bandied around a lot today that has a lot of currency is resilience, to build a resilient community. And that means you need to build things that actually bring the community together. Density per se doesn't equal urbanity. It just means high density. What you need is the places where people can come together collectively and have a sense of participation in the place, participation in a wider society, connection with their fellow citizens. And through that they can build empathy and understanding of difference because the great thing about the city and the writers in the 19th and early 20th century saw this in the birth of the metropolis is you can be anonymous, you can actually be different, it's not like a country town. And the city allows you to be anonymous but then the places within the city allow you to have a local sense of community as well and that, that sense you can do either or both at the same time or neither if you want if you want to be a you know, sociopath. I think that's one of the reasons that people are so gravitating towards cities, is the life of them. So I think that we need to, we, we haven't done high density areas well, we don't invest enough in the public things, and that's got to change. In the case of Green Square, the state government needs to come to the party with transport. They keep forgetting to put railway stations on railway lines. There should be another half a dozen railway stations in Green Square, particularly given the future population of 60,000 people. And the, the cities had to give them land to put in schools. So health and the like, all of these things are state government responsibility. But where's the leadership of the federal government? They've just been completely abject and absence with, ex with a couple of exceptions, I named the best one uh, at the beginning of this, in terms of their responsibility towards city making. They're very happy to have immigration increase and the like, well fine, but people live somewhere and they have to invest in cities and we simply do not understand as a society, do not understand with our fractured silo driven departments of government at, at federal and uh, state level, we do not understand city making and that's been uh, a consistent problem through my professional life and it's one that we constantly try to improve by advocacy. That was Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis Architecture and Urban Design based in Sydney. The good examples of high-density design are always planned with a connection to a lot of other services. The building alone can't do everything. However, this reality is often ignored when looking through the marketing material for apartments. 
It's not uncommon to see phrases that infer a developer is not only creating a building, they're also creating a community. Lee Hillam tells us about the issues behind some developments that propose to be making something that can't be made with bricks and mortar. Oh gosh, we all try so hard, don't we? We all try so hard to make the world a better place. You know, I think so many architects go into architecture, or at least you know, some stage in their lives think that architecture can solve the problems of the world. And certainly, certainly architecture can help and also certainly architecture can cause huge damage. You know, so we do have to be very, very careful. But we're just making the stage for the play. We can't actually build a community like some developer marketers might say, you know, here we've built a new community. No, there's, no you haven't. You haven't. Hopefully, the best you can hope for is you've made a good place that that community will use. But it's more than likely that once people move into a place, they'll use it in a way that you didn't anticipate and didn't expect and sometimes don't even like. But that's their community and their place. So that's what you have to accept. So I'd love to think that we could solve it all and uh, make the world a better place through architecture. But what we actually just do is make the frame and the people have to um, have to understand it and have to be empowered to, to use it and participate in it. So it's, it, it again is really about architects putting their egos to the side and making sure that they're listening to what people want. And if, if those people are, are really genuinely wanting something that you don't agree with, well, either fire yourself off the job <laughs> or find a way to make that thing that you object to make it good you know make it make it what it needs to be for them but also make it good so that's the challenge of architecture not whether or not you can um, make an iconic building or you know it really is about how you can facilitate a good life not produce it not make it not unless you're going to move into the building yourself and then of course you, you have some role but then your, your role is an, as an inhabitant not as an architect by that stage. I don't mean to sound cynical about it, I think that we're still so important in that work but I do think that sometimes people get a bit carried away with an idea that architecture will fix it. <laughs> that was Lee Hillam from Dun & Hillam Architects based in Sydney. Designing a building so it's connected to community is linked to the social requirements of one of the three pillars of environmentally sustainable design, or ESD. Those pillars are environmental sustainability, financial sustainability and social sustainability. For a while now, many councils around Australia request an ESD statement for a construction of any size to show how sensitive a project will be to the environment. But many people are now saying that the sustainability moniker is not as sensitive as people originally thought. Dick Jarman from Circa Morris Nunn Architects in Hobart tells us what he thinks is the biggest myth about sustainable architecture and what we need to do in order to achieve the results that the sustainable movement has been proposing. The biggest myth about sustainable communities is sustainable communities is something good to do. I don't think it's enough. We need to be doing uh, what we call productive communities or productive design to just sustain activities as they are where <laughs> it's game over. As Einstein said, to, there's no point in trying to fix a problem with the thinking that got you there. And I think sustainable this whole idea of that sustainable architecture is actually going to save us in any way or form 
is, uh, is nonsense. We need to actually start taking the next step of creating buildings or design which actually not just um, are carbon neutral but are carbon negative. When we design Pixel in Melbourne, it's the greenest office building in the world and in time we think it will become carbon negative, which means it actually is contributing back more than it actually gave. Um, it will depend on the longevity of, of the occupancy. But uh, I've, an, an example that I think is a great one is one of my students in the UK. He designed in Hong Kong a building which was a industrial meat manufacturing building where you actually grew meat in it but it was also an exhibition building to change people's concept about the uh, consumption of manufactured meat because that's the biggest hurdle the, the science is there we can do it and if we if you could imagine you could create a laboratory controlled meat which uh, had all the you know didn't have the cancers and all the other problems that meat have but also didn't have all the land that 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 beef take up and also the methane that it creates for them uh, suddenly you have a solution you have a, an architectural proposal or a design which actually could change the world that's what we need to be targeting is every single project we should be looking at not only how can we not just make more damage, but how can we make the world better? And only then will we have a chance. This has been episode nine of Hearing Architecture. Thanks so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Hearing Architecture featured the following guests. Damien Madigan, Jane Weatherall, Jeeva Greenaway, Rod Simpson, Shanine Fanton, Belinda Orwood, Rob McGoran, Amelia Borg, Timothy Moore, Jane Court, Andrew Maynard, Professor Philip Tallis, Lee Hillam and Dick Jarman. The interviews in this episode were produced around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Voles, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueenie, Reese Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster and Daniel Moore. The Australian Institute of Architects production team was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodward and Tom McKenzie. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.